Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the tech overlay that's driving workforce gains in every part of government. The use of automated systems and the use of technology is inherent in almost everything that we're doing these days, right? You, you name it, we're doing it. Even when you're buying services, there's a piece of technology there. And is a new strategy coming for dealing with competitors in the new year? Once their regime is perceived as being illegitimate or not, not effective, then they could be easily toppled, um, which is something U.S. strategists are trying to think about is how do you uh, basically attack their strategy or attack the, the legitimacy of the regime itself, and then maybe that's a more effective approach. It's Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A change of pace this week, a look ahead at what's coming in 2022. Some of the most experienced practitioners in government will give you their top two for 22, the two things they think you should watch in the new year. First, a reminder, though, February 8th is the Delivering Better Outcomes Through Automation event FedScoop's putting on. It's at the Ritz-Carlton West End in D.C. from 8.30 to 3. You'll learn how agencies are adopting automation to build capacity, efficiency, and accuracy. You can read more about it and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Homeland Security Department and the Internal Revenue Service have new hiring authorities to bring in talent that fills big gaps for those agencies, but no new authorities for procurement talent seem to be on the horizon. Soraya Correa is the former chief procurement officer at the Department of Homeland Security, sharing her top two for 2022. Soraya, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Your top two for 2022 starts with talent in the procurement area. What should people watch? What's necessary to change or move forward in your view in 2022 regarding procurement talent? Welcome. So first of all, thank you for having me, Francis. It's always a pleasure to join you. Um, the reason I say talent and what I think people need to be looking for is how we recruit the talent, how we hire them, you know, the speed and efficacy of hiring, and then how we develop them because the topics are changing and people have to become much better versed at supply chain management, uh, cybersecurity, maximizing small business participation. These are all topics that affect the federal workforce tremendously, and especially on the procurement side of the business. So when I think of talent, that's what I think about it. And I got to tell you that recruitment and hiring becomes critically important. Make sure that you're looking for the right skill sets. It's not just about technical talent. It's about those relationship skills and then making sure that we can get them on board as quickly as possible because competition is tight. When you say topics are changing, Soraya, how are the topics changing and what are they changing from and changing to? So it's no, it's no longer acceptable, I think, for the procurement community to be passive on topics like cybersecurity and uh, um, supply chain management, uh, how we engage with small businesses. You can't be passive about that. You really have to be fully engaged. And so you have to understand what these topics mean and how they impact your work and how they impact the procurements that we affect, you know, the buys that we make for our customers. We've talked on this program at length with a number of different people, including you, about recruiting and hiring talent and the challenges that uh, are uh, inherent in those issues in the federal government. I want to go to the idea of developing talent. What does one do? What is effective at developing acquisition talent in particular, especially when the topics are changing in the way that you just described? 
So what's effective is just-in-time training, making sure that you're making training readily accessible, easily accessible, and a little bit more interactive. No longer, I think, do we need just instructor-led training. You actually need more of a discussion amongst the, the professionals with the right people in the room. So when I think about training on cybersecurity and supply chain management and topics of that nature, I think you got to bring logisticians to the table. I think you got to bring your CIO. I think you got to bring all your cybersecurity personnel. And you make you make that conversation engaging and you do it in small chunks. People don't have the time or the energy to sit either in front of a screen or in a classroom, forget classroom, but to sit there for four or five hours. So I think you got to do it in small shots, like half hour, one hour increments and keep a discussion going, create communities of interest. So uh, that's that's the way I think the best way to, to train just in time is something that I pushed very hard at DHS because I felt that was the right way to get to people and then keep it available so people can go back and refresh their memories. Long time ago, a procurement professional from the Defense Department told me that it was her assessment that it takes about five years between hiring somebody and the day or time that they become really, really proficient at their jobs. Is that your view? Does that model still hold? Because this is probably 10 or 12 years ago that that discussion happened. And if so, do we have the luxury of that anymore, recruiting somebody into the government and expecting they're going to stay in the same job or similar job for five years and learn what they need to know to then be able to go and run a project on their own? I think with the tools that we have in place today, we can bring them up to speed a little bit faster, but it takes, if this is going to sound like a cliche, but it takes the community working together, right? It takes uh, the leadership recognizing what that, that skill gap is and making sure they're delivering to that, those people the opportunities, the capabilities to learn quickly. Um, because it's all about speed, right? It's all about the experience that I give you. It's about the opportunities that I create. I think you can keep talent around as long as you're giving them new and challenging opportunities and you continue to remind them why they're there what their value proposition is. Most people leave jobs because they're frustrated or tired or bored, frankly, or they don't feel they're developing anymore. So you got to keep them energized and engaged. And I think that's the job of leadership. And so leadership has to stay on top of these topics, right? Um, it's no longer good to just say, hey, I'm the leader, rah, rah. You have to understand these topics and be able to engage in conversations with your employees and help them understand them and be and feel a part of the solution. All right, the second item on your top two for 22 is IT solutions. That's a pretty broad statement there. What are you focused in on? What are you honing in on there, Soraya? So, so the reason I bring up IT solutions, it's not about the technology, it's about adopting the solutions. Um, so you pick your solution, it doesn't matter. But I don't think we can deliver on some of the lofty goals that have been laid out in the president's management agenda and also in many of the executive orders, especially the one on customer experience, without bringing to bear some good solutions. Um, you know, when I think of customer experience, I called it the experience of the customer for the last 15 years. It's all about that total engagement with the customer. How do you bring them into the equation and then how you carry them out throughout, you know, how you help them walk through the process and understand it. I think IT solutions is the way to go because it's more efficient. It's going to be more effective and it's a more, uh, I think it's an easier way to engage with customers near and far. 
right? Because you can't just think about the customer that's sitting right in front of you. You got to think about the customer that's all over the place. And when I think of the, uh, the government worker, especially those of us in federal government, we have to think about that chain of customers. I talk about the chain of customers. My immediate customer is typically going to be the program office, followed by the end user followed by ultimately the taxpayer. So you have to think about that entire line of experience and you can't deliver on that experience without good, solid, secure IT solutions and systems. What do you expect to change along those lines in the coming year or maybe a couple of years, Soraya? So I, I think we have to do a better job of adopting technology. In other words, I think everybody recognizes the need for technology, but I'm not sure we still understand what it takes to adopt technology into our systems, to accept certain levels of risk that are associated when you automate and you're sharing information and you're passing information back and forth. Um, this is where the CIO community is extremely important, and I think the partnerships that we form with the CIO community are, are extremely important. In fact, one of the comments that I made, and actually as, as part of my role as the chief procurement officer at DHS, I brought IT to the table pretty much every time we talked about acquisition strategy, because IT, you know, systems and the use of automated systems and the use of technology is inherent in almost everything that we're doing these days, right? You, you name it, we're doing it. Even when you're buying services, there's a piece of technology there. So IT is no longer someone that buys something. They're actually part of that team that strategizes the acquisition. So that's what I think about. I think about how we adopt technology, how we understand the use of technology, how we accept certain risks associated with the use of technology and how we mitigate those risks. That integration of the procurement organization in, in an agency and the CIO community, CIO organization is something that's gotten tighter and tighter over the last maybe five to 10 years in government. Claire Martirana, the federal CIO, was on the program last week, and she talked about the closer integration of the councils. The CIO council is going to work closer with the, the senior procurement leaders uh, organization and the chief data officers council, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I imagine that given what you just described, knowing that that is about to happen is a good thing in your mind, can only lead to infinitely better outcomes. Yeah, 100% agreed. In fact, um, again, while at DHS, our management team was a very tight-knit group. We worked together very well. We recognized the importance and the role of not only the CIO, but the chief financial officer, the chief security officer, our chief readiness support officer, which ran our list logistics operations, we brought us together. And here's the interesting thing. Done right, when the organization is built right, one of the phenomenons that we saw at DHS, when topics came up, when we knew that there were challenges coming, we met as a team, not with our boss, but amongst ourselves. We didn't wait for the boss to call a meeting. One of us would say, hey, they're talking about this. Let's come together and let's regroup because you know this is coming. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that unity of effort that comes from that unified CXO family, right? That when they come together, we come up with better solutions and we start to anticipate what the needs of our customers are and how we can best support them. And that to me ultimately is what we're there for. We are a service provider 
and we're there to make sure that we fulfill the mission needs of the agency. All right. I'm going to, I know you're enjoying your retirement, but I'm going to put you back in government service for a second, Soraya. You're going back in today, December, 2021, and your job is to build something like the Procurement Innovation Lab, the pill. How would you do it differently today, given the context of what we've described in this conversation and the tools that maybe exist today that didn't when you stood it up before? How would it look different today and function different today, if, if at all? Um, the, only, the only change that I would really make is, again, bringing my IT folks to the table, perhaps even inviting other members of the CXO community to participate now that we understand more what that relationship really means and how it works together. That probably is about the only difference. I think the way we built it, the approach that we took, which was a little bit more gradual, was the right way to do it so that people would accept that this is change, this is change for the good, and that it's voluntary change. Because I still would not change the voluntary nature of the Procurement Innovation Lab. I don't believe you can force people to be innovative. I think you invite them to be innovative. And then you encourage them, support them, and when that innovation doesn't work, especially in government, you stand up and take responsibility for it as the leader. Um, because the more that you can support that, then the more people will feel encouraged to do it. It's scary. It's failing is scary, right? When something doesn't work, and especially in government, it's very frightening because you know everybody will hear about it, right? Because there are no secrets. Um, so having leadership that is supportive, that will stand with you, I think is the most important part. So the only thing I might do a little bit differently is maybe invite some of the other organizations to play on the team. But other than that, I think I'm pretty proud of what we did and how we did it. And I remain proud of what they're doing today. A lot there, Soraya. Thank you very much for joining me. Happy New Year and look forward to connecting again in 2022. You have a wonderful holiday season. Take care and look forward to seeing you in 2022 as well. You can read more about Soraya's top two for 22 in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A reminder that you'll get a new Daily Scoop podcast again tomorrow and Thursday. We're off for New Year's Eve Friday and back at it Monday, January 3rd with a brand new year of shows. Wednesday's Daily Scoop podcast debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. China's second aircraft carrier, the Shandong, is in the South China Sea for what the Chinese government calls combat-oriented exercises. The exercises are calling attention to what some people inside the Pentagon refer to as persistent engagement. Brian Clark is senior fellow and director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. He's former special assistant to the chief of naval operations. Brian, welcome. Looking at your top two for 22, you write the U.S. is entering an era of constant confrontation, and you write about that in the context of cyber conflict. And then you also pose, I hope it's a rhetorical question, does the U.S. walk away from denying and defeating aggression in the national defense strategy? There's an intersection of those two. I wonder what you think that intersection is, Brian. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me on, uh, Francis. Yeah, I think the uh, intersection is uh, right now we're, we're confronted with adversaries who have chosen to undertake an ongoing uh, effort in what we call the gray zone to really put U.S. troops on, or U.S. forces on the defensive and U.S. allies. Um, they're doing this by not escalating to the point where it becomes a war, because becomes a combat operation. But they're, you know, the, the, the types of things we're doing in the South China Sea, what we're seeing in cyberspace, what the Space Force uh, commander recently said was happening in space are all examples of Chinese and Russian uh, militaries 
uh, trying to test U.S. resolve and trying to evaluate whether U.S. red lines are really going to be red lines or not. Um, so that's important because uh, in the national defense strategy, what they're trying to wrestle with is how to deter Chinese and Russian aggression. And how you define aggression is really important because uh, one of the challenges apparently inside the building is uh, determining whether they're going to focus on you know, being ready to fight the big war you know, so we can deter Russia and China by being able to win in some kind of large existential conflict. Or are we going to fight them in this you know, gray zone and all the other intermediary, intermediary confrontations that are likely to occur on the day-to-day -day basis? So I think you know, that choice is really important because you maybe can't do both. Maybe we can't win the big war while simultaneously doing the persistent confrontation we're experiencing today. And if you're Russia and China, you've really put us into a dilemma mm -hmm. you know, of having to choose. If you turn that backwards and try to look at it from the adversary's point of view, as you and others have encouraged me to do over time, given those two scenarios that you just laid out, which is more to the benefit of Russia or China, or maybe it's a different answer for each potential adversary? Oh, absolutely. It's it's one answer for both. And I think you've heard General Berger from the Marine Corps and others you know, give voice to this, that we're preparing for the high-end fight. Uh, which means we're basically seeding everything short of that. Uh, and that's great for Russia and China. Because if you're Russia and China, you look at this saying, I've got a very successful hand that I'm playing right now. I'm getting what I want. You know, I'm pr pressuring the West to give in on various you know, concessions uh, that I, I would like them to give in on. Um, and I'm getting the territory and influence that I want relative to my, my neighbors. Um, and if the U.S. chooses to prepare for a fight that's never going to come, that's terrific because it leaves me this entire area of competition to myself. The overlay for all of this is, as you point out in the notes that you sent me, the FY23 DOD budget is going to be the same or less than FY22. Right. Right. Money is going to be tight. And so one of the challenges that the department is facing with the national defense strategy is you know, how to essentially take that money and stretch it to be able to address both the high-end fight uh, and the day-to-day -day persistent confrontation. And they're, they're essentially going to have to choose. They're going to have to make some choices that whether they say it or not, they're going to probably weight their effort towards the high-end fight because there's enough voices inside the department that feel like if you aren't preparing for that, you're kind of leaving open that, that option. Uh, and I, it just think, seems like a, others think that's a wrong choice. I think that's the wrong choice. I think General Berger thinks that's the wrong choice because if, if you uh, leave that entire field open for an adversary of all the low-end and, and gray zone confrontations, they're just going to use that to eventually get what they want. Um, so I, so I, I think that we're, we're facing this very difficult choice that's driven by budget realities. Uh, if there was some much, much larger defense budget, maybe you could argue you could pursue both at the same time, which we've done in the past. Uh, it's unlikely that we're going to have that kind of money in the future, especially given China's ability to modernize its military. I mean, the, the amount of money we'd have to spend to you know, pace them in the high-end fight may not be sustainable for us. And I've gone there on a number of occasions over the last several years. I mean, the bottom line is we are facing two adversaries who can decide arbitrarily. The leaders of those adversaries can decide arbitrarily, this is what we're going to do, and action begins immediately. And right. the democratic process for all of the things about it that are wonderful, it ain't fast. Right, right. It's deliberative. You know, we're supposed to be trying to make good choices by having a lot of voices involved and, and gaining consensus uh, to some degree. Um, and, you know, Chinese and Russian leaders don't have that. And of course, that also means that they're somewhat brittle, you know, in that once their regime is perceived as being illegitimate or not, not effective, then they could be easily toppled, um, which is something U.S strategists are trying to think about is how do you uh, basically attack their strategy or attack the, the legitimacy of the regime itself. And then maybe that's a more effective approach for military strategy than trying to prepare for the World War III that they, the Russians and Chinese don't want to have. 
um, they, they would rather not have that kind of conflict. The other item that you write about in your top two for 22 is who will control cislunar space, the new high ground? You alluded a moment ago to the challenges we're already seeing in space. How do you see that landscape developing in the next year and, and longer than that too, Brian? Yeah, it's interesting when you look at this idea of persistent confrontation, um, it, that's been something that's sort of imposed on us, right? So we, we now have to react to this area, uh, era of persistent confrontation. And it's now expanded to space, which is something that we kind of expected in the inside the military community, but now we're talking about it publicly, which is new. Um, and I think the, the question then is, uh, how are we going to conduct that engagement, right? Space is a much more difficult environment to engage with your adversary on. It's difficult to manage escalation. Things can get out of hand very quickly. Um, and so one thought is, well, are there domains or areas of space where we can have you know, more of a free hand, where maybe it's not so congested with commercial and military uh, satellites that you risk some cataclysmic event if you, if you try to engage persistently there? Well, cislunar space is that place, right? So there's a very small number of, of objects up there. It's the area between geostationary uh, orbit, basically, and the moon. Um, that area has places where that are called the Grange points, where you can actually position satellites and have them re remain there. In, in stasis, if you will, and not have to uh, move them around. Um, but there's a lot of, it's a very demanding area of space, obviously, because the distances are vast, right? So now you need propulsion systems that can move satellites around in there. And what it does is it opens up the idea of what uh, some people are calling space maneuver warfare, where we go beyond just sort of inside of an orbit going and trying to jam or interfere with somebody's satellites to now you can actually have space operations that are more like what you'd see in the air or on the sea happening in this cislunar space because it is such a vast maneuver area um, where there isn't necessarily this risk of orbital de debris being circulated around the planet on an ongoing basis. So if something gets damaged in cislunar space, it might just kind of hang out there uh, and you can avoid it just like any, any field of debris on the ocean. The question that you posed, who will control cislunar space, the new high ground, is it possible to control an environment like that or is it just possible to maintain and develop a presence there, understanding that others will try to do the same thing. Yeah, so I would say there's a first mover advantage to whoever gets up there with the ability to, to get a propulsion system that allows you to move ships around up there or, or objects or satellites around uh, and have the ability to go impact other people's satellites, either by damaging them or jamming them or, or whatever. Um, that could give you a level of control early on. And then I think like you're seeing, like you see on the ocean, um, you know, the first mover kind of gets the ability to control things as more, more, more players come in, the, in there. It becomes more of a competition. Uh, and then it comes down to, um, you know, either you cooperate or you compete, um, and then maybe there's the option for denial uh, at some point in the future. So the question is, are we going to be able to uh, create, um, are we going to be able to compete effectively in cislunar space, and can maybe, maybe, maybe get a first mover advantage to control it initially? You referenced in your first item the national defense strategy. 2022 should be the year where we see the Biden administration's national defense strategy. What will be in there or not in there that will indicate the answers to the questions that you've posed today, Brian? Yeah, so I think the uh, discussion and uh, the strategy will be on integrated deterrence, which is the administration's idea for how do you do this, I don't want to say more whole of government, but you know, kind of a multi-pronged approach to deterring. So it's not just denial of aggression like the previous strategy had. It's going to be both denial and punishment and also create the uh, opportunity for entangling alliances to make any sort of confrontation turn into something that's messier and more expensive than it originally was planned to be. So that that that'll be kind of the overall approach. The question I think that or the, I guess the key indicator is going to be the balance they, they uh, strike between them and the priority they assign between those different prongs. You know, so is denial and punishment, are they kind of elevated equally? 
is one elevated or the other in terms of how they describe it. Um, and then in terms of the implications for investments, the strategy probably should give some in, you know, sense of where they're going to put the money. And that would also be an indication of what the relative priority is between them. Um, I think if you're going to focus, if they're going to focus on this persistent confrontation phase, then you'll see a lot more emphasis in there on the entangling alliances or the entangling efforts to try to you know, constrain options for Chinese and Russian forces in the day-to-day -day operations, as opposed to focusing entirely on the conflict, which is all about denial and punishment. Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute, thanks for coming on. It's great to talk to you, my friend. Happy New Year. Thanks, Francis. Happy New Year to you, too. You can read more about Brian's top two for 22 in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose. Tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast includes the former Chief Information Officer of the United States, Suzette Kent, and some ominous predictions for 22 from former HR official in government, Ron Sanders. That Daily Scoop podcast rolls out tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The next Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow afternoon. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>